So a mother decided to visit her son for the first time at college. And when she entered his room, she scanned the walls and she saw quite a few suggestive pictures on the wall. And she was tempted to say something, but she knew with her son that spiritual nagging didn't work and he was an adult and so she chose not to say anything. She went home from her visit and she ended up sending him a package. And uh, when her son opened up the package, what she had sent him was a picture of the head of Jesus. And the son, though, was very thankful for the gift and so he put this picture of Jesus up over his desk. And the night before he went to, that first night before he went to bed, he ended up uh, removing the pinup that was closest to the picture. It just didn't seem right to have that pinup close to Jesus. And then the next day, another picture was thrown away. And day after day, the pictures began to disappear from the walls until only one remained the picture of the Savior. I think that's a great picture, no pun intended, uh, for us tonight of what godliness looks like. Godliness is this idea, it's not, is when we, 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 we put our gaze on Christ and when Christ becomes so important to us that those things that don't resemble Christ, they begin to be things that we just want to get rid of in our lives. Tonight we're going to talk about gospel-fueled godliness. I don't think churches talk enough about godliness. I think it's important. It's really clear in Scripture that godliness matters greatly to God. Uh, Scripture is very clear on this. In fact, here's a couple verses to get us started. 1 Timothy 4.8, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So there's, there's value in physical exercise. If we can go back to the last, uh, that first verse again. So there's, there's, there's value in physical exercise. I am in the process of trying to lose weight once again and uh, went out and worked out this morning and ran some miles and lifted some weights. You probably noticed. Um, and uh, it brings some value. There's some value to that. You have more energy, right? You look better. You're, you know, maybe you, your spouse wants to kiss you more. I don't know. You, there's great value in, in physical training and looking well, but nothing compared to godliness, spiritual training, not only for this life, but the life to come. I, mean, I love that promise that godliness, unless, can we be honest, that, that godliness isn't real, always easy in an ungodly world, is it? Right? It's a challenge. Um, and it's certainly not, you know, what sells books and, and, and those kind of things. You know, we want, we, you know, our churches want to talk about the blessings and all the things and how we can overcome and conquer things. And there's nothing wrong with talking about those things. They're biblical. But we need to start talking more about godliness. What does it mean to really look like God in our behavior and our actions to those around us? And it has great value, as this verse says. Not only does it have great value in our lives now, but of course, in the life to come. The next verse I want to show you before we dive into our main text is also in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You want to really be wealthy? It's not accumulating a lot of stuff. You want to be wealthy? Learn to be content with simply pursuing godliness in your life. Pleasing God. 
Knowing that your life brings him honor, brings more contentment and more wealth than any amount of money could ever do. Godliness matters. And before we start, I want to just simply mention what godliness isn't and then what godliness is. I don't have notes for you again this week. My apologies, but uh, if you want to, you know, put them in your phone or if you do have something to write with, you certainly can do that. First of all, godliness is not how much Bible knowledge you have or simply following the rules. Now, Uncage is committed to helping people gain biblical knowledge. So Bible knowledge is a big deal. Uh, big deal. Biblical education is a passion of mine. The, the church that we're launching, uh, biblical teaching and training is going to be an important piece of what we do. So, so don't get me wrong, but you know what? You can have a lot of Bible knowledge and not be godly. I mean, all of us know people who, who have a lot of Bible knowledge, but they haven't really gained biblical wisdom, <laughs> They haven't been applying it to their life and their relationships. And so godliness is more than just having a knowledge of the word of God. And it's more than simply following rules. I went to a college that had a lot of rules. I went to a Bible college with a lot of rules. You know, in college, I wasn't allowed to play cards. Bible college couldn't have facial hair. Bible college on campus, the one I went to, I couldn't, you couldn't hold a girl's hand on campus. She might get pregnant, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> couldn't even hold a girl's hand. You couldn't go to movies. I remember, this is how strict it was, and this will date me a little bit, but back a long time ago, early 1990s, when uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman, anybody remember him? Okay. Uh, he came out with the, the, the album, The Great Adventure. And uh, this, was, this wasn't like it was Striper, okay, or, or even Petra, you know, that would be a little harder uh, type of, you know, hard rock Christian music. No, this was Stephen Curtis Chapman. They literally told you, like, on the, your, you, know, this, this was, you know, this was back when you had cassettes or CDs, right? They would actually they put a, a thing out to everyone saying, you can listen to song one, four, eight, ten. <laughs> Now, don't get me wrong, I loved my college experience. Uh, I grew so much there. Uh, I don't know all the ins and outs of why it was necessarily so conservative, but you know, here's my point. There were people in that campus that followed those rules and, and lived by a, a strict code that was given to us, but it didn't necessarily mean that they were godly. I mean, if, if, if godliness was, was following rules, then the Pharisees would have been the godliest of people in the Bible. And yet it was the Pharisees that Jesus got on the most. Why? Because godliness isn't just following a set of rules, and in some cases, rules that aren't even what the Bible is actually saying, right? There's, there's legalism. Legalism is far far from godliness. So what is godliness? I think in its simplest form, I would define godliness as a lifestyle consistent with the character of God. That in the day-to-day -day life, our lives resemble what is the character of God in our relationships, 
uh, in how we handle adversity that comes our way, how we interact and deal with enemies in our lives, what comes out of our mouth are the things that we say. Does it, does it reflect the good godliness of God, the holiness of God? It is a lifestyle that is consistent with the character of God. Now, I know, and you know, none of us are going to perfectly do that this side of heaven. But godliness is a consistency in our day-to-day life of reflecting the character of God. Kind of an easy way to remember it is godliness is God-likeness. Okay, without further ado, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4 if you haven't done so already. Do not get nervous about this. I, listen, the last three weeks I haven't been using a watch, and I think I've gone an hour each time. But you love Jesus, so you probably want even more than an hour. But uh, I, I'm going to try to manage the time a little better, and I brought a watch, okay? So there's no excuses. I'm putting it right here on the table, okay? So I'm going to say something, so I'll make you nervous, but I'm not going to spend tons of time on, on each individual one, so don't get nervous. But I have seven, seven things I want to say about godliness from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and it uh, just comes right out of the text Seven is a biblical number, it's a heavenly number, so it's a perfect number for us to to go with tonight, all right? Gospel-fueled godliness. What does that look like? All right, chapter four, verse one, let's take a look. Since therefore, all right, you gotta see what the therefore is therefore. It's linking chapter three, the second half of chapter three, all the way through really all of chapter four. One of the themes that weaves through there is suffering, but a very specific kind of suffering, a suffering because of your commitment to Christ. And so it's linking that idea of suffering because you're living like Christ in a Christless society. He's saying, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. It's a military term, that word arm. In other words, prepare yourself for battle in this world. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from Sin. That does not mean, of course, being sinless, but a life of sin. So the first of seven is this. Number one, write it down. Godliness is fueled by the gospel. You see, when it talks about ceasing from sin and pursuing godliness, as it will in the 11 verses, it begins with Christ. It begins with Christ and his ultimate suffering on a cross. Of course, the totality of the gospel is not that he just died on a cross, but that he rose from the grave and that he'll return again. And so it's the gospel that ought to fuel our uh, commitment to godliness really in two ways. Think about this way. The gospel motivates and the gospel empowers us to godliness. So how does the gospel help us to pursue God-likeness in our lives? It motivates us. It should be the motivation. It should be the fuel when, when we become overwhelmed and we constantly are singing and, and praying about and dwelling upon, meditating upon, meditating upon the gospel, reminding ourselves all that Christ has done for us. It should overwhelm us with a great desire to have lives that are a a thank you to him for what he has done for us. You see, the motivation for godliness isn't what we might get. The motivation for godliness is what we have already been given by God. The motivation isn't 
What we might get by what we do, the motivation is fueled by what has already been given to us by what Christ has done on our behalf. That's the motivation. Not, well, ooh, God will bless me. You know what? Yeah, he probably will. But that's not the motivation. That's not godliness anymore. That's selfish motives. Not only are the motives should be just an overwhelming gratitude for what Christ has done on behalf, but we also have not only motivation, we have the empowerment. Look at Romans chapter six, verse six. It says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to what? Might be brought to? Come on, might be brought to? Sin's got nothing on us because of the resurrection of Christ. So that we would no longer be what? Enslaved to sin. Do you know that if you are in Christ, sin no longer has that same power in your life? You are no longer enslaved to sin. Now, Paul goes on to say later in that chapter not to let sin reign. So we can willingly choose to let sin still reign in our life. But once he died for it and rose from the dead to defeat it, sin lost its power on us. Little boy and his father were driving down a country road on a beautiful spring afternoon when suddenly out of nowhere a bumblebee flies into the car window. Since the boy was deathly allergic to bee stings, he became petrified. His father quickly reached out, grabbed the bee, squeezed it in his hand, and then released it. But as soon as he let the bee go, The young son became frantic once again as it buzzed by the little boy. The father, sensing his son's terror, opened his hand and showed the hand to his son, and there stuck in his hand was the stinger from the bee. You see this, he said to his son, you don't need to be afraid anymore. I've taken the sting for you. That is what Christ has done for us. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 and 56, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. The sting of sin has been removed from our lives because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that you probably know that, but this is preaching the gospel to ourselves. It is reminding us that there is no sin out there that has power over what Christ can do in and through us. The sting of sin is gone. Let's look at the second thing, verse two and three. It says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions but for the will of God. So in other words, as long as I'm in the flesh, right? As long as I have a body, I'm, I'm on earth. I'm no longer live for human passions because of the gospel, right? But for the will of God. For the time has passed. 
For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. In other words, the, the, the Roman Empire, those who were in power at that time, the, the people in the world, right, want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. We won't dissect, we have a lot to cover, we won't dissect each one of those, but, but basically he's just giving examples. This, this is an exhaustive list. He's just saying sexual sin, uh, drinking sins, uh, of overindulgence in alcohol, and and idolatry is some examples that, that we no longer are to give in to that. I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, I love my wife. I adore my wife. I want to stay pure and holy. I don't want to ever look at another woman. I don't want to ever think of another woman. But I want to tell you, as much as I love my wife, I still have a sin nature. And so there still dwells in me a, a, a worldly, a flesh, a fleshliness that is tempted to look at other women, to think of other women. I mean, that's just the reality of life. That doesn't make me unspiritual. It makes me a human with a sin nature. But my desire, my, my passion is to be pure for God first and foremost, but in honor of my wife as well. See, so the second thing we need to understand about godliness is that godliness chooses the pleasure of God over the passions of the flesh. The only way any of us will really begin to see God-likeness in our lives is when that desire to truly please God supersedes the desire to give in to whatever our flesh wants. And I'm telling you, I'm preaching on godliness here, and I'm gonna tell you, this week there is going to be, because of the sin nature, times that I will want to give in to the flesh. That is a reality for all of us. I mean, the Apostle Paul was super spiritual, but he talked about that in chapter seven of Romans, right? Man, there's this, this battle going on. You remember the shows, you know, the cartoons where you had one uh, good angel on one side and you had a little devil in, in red with a tail and a pitchfork, right? You know, on one side, oh, which side will I listen to? And while that's not necessarily theologically how it is, in some ways that, that re- there is some truth to that in the sense of there's always gonna be this battle that wages inside each of us, the one side that wants so desperately to look like Christ and wants so desperately to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, but there's this other side in us that wants what it wants, even if what it wants isn't what God wants. That is a reality for every human being. There isn't a single human being that doesn't struggle with that. And the more we soak in the gospel, and the more we lean in and, and, and make our relationship and developing our relationship with God our utmost priority, the more we yearn to listen to the spirit of God instead of the flesh of man inside of us. Do I want to please God or do I want to please myself? At the end of the day, that's the question of whether or not a person begins to pursue godliness in our life. Am I a selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed person who at the end of the day, I'm gonna do what I wanna do? Or have I bended a knee? Have I yielded the will because of my great love for God? 
because of your great love for God, to say, no, I wanna please God above giving in to the passions of the flesh. What some of us do is instead we, we, substitute, we substitute for maybe something sort of in the middle. And, and I think this verse describes a little bit what I'm talking about. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And then what happens is we, we land at some sort of in-between stage where, where, where we kind of, you know, we're not, we're not living in an all-out rebellion, but we're not really necessarily pursuing, like totally pursuing godliness. And so we have this appearance of godliness, you know, and we maybe look good on Sundays, we, we play the part, we know the talk, and we don't give in to these big things, but, but there's still these things that we continue to turn to that maybe others don't see, and, and, and maybe we consider them or see them as little things in our lives. And so we have this appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Here's what I mean by that. That if we live in this comfortable space that really in our own flesh we could, pr- like this comfortable space that, that, that doesn't actually take sacrifice and doesn't actually take self-denial and doesn't actually take us falling on our knees and crying out for God, you know, oh God, make me holy, God, make me pure. But we live in this kind of safe place that I think so many quote unquote Christians live in. I think what we miss then is we miss the power of God showing up in our life. Because the truth of the matter is we can live a pretty Americanized, comfortable, safe form of Christianity without much help. But say, no, I I, 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 I wanna pursue true godliness. I wanna be totally pure and holy and I wanna love like Jesus and I wanna pour up my life until Christ returns. I'm gonna tell you, that requires the power of the Holy Spirit to live that kind of life. And so I think you see the trade-off in this verse. If we, if we settle for an appearance of godliness, we're gonna miss out on the power, the power of God. And so for any of us, if we're gonna truly choose the pleasure of God over the passion of the flesh, we need the power of the Holy Spirit and not be willing to settle for something less than true and genuine godliness. Look at verse four. This is what's gonna happen when we make that choice though and we do allow the spirit of God to lead us into godliness. This is what's gonna happen, verse four. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They say, what in the world? Why are you denying yourself? Why are you doing all of these things? It's so much fun, come on, are you kidding me? I don't know if you saw today's um, uh, Philip, um, I think it was today's, or yeah, I think it was today's Philip, and I uh, talked about, you know, before I really, really, truly came to know Christ, I grew up knowing about Christ, but I mean, really committing my life to Christ into my junior and high school, you know, I had, like, I acted like any, you know, hormone-enraged boy would who didn't really, truly know Christ as Savior, and uh, when I gave my life to Christ, one of the first things the Holy Spirit began to work on in my life was purity, and as a brand new Christian that wanted so, so badly to be godly, to please God with my life, I was so overwhelmed with the gospel. I made a commitment that I would never kiss a girl until the day of my engagement. Well, I didn't know it'd take seven years to find that person. 
You know, I even had a girl break up with me because I wouldn't kiss her. <laughs> it was normally the opposite problem, <laughs> you know. I wouldn't kiss her. I'm not to kiss you. I made a commitment to God. I'm just, you know, and I'm not saying this to everyone if you're here and you're single. I'm not saying this to commitment everyone should make, but I just, I, you know, I didn't want to drift back, right? I remember friends making fun of me. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't label it persecution like they're facing here in First Peter. But, you know, that wasn't an easy commitment before God to make. And, and I remember, you know, people thinking, you're nuts. Like, that's crazy. But by God's grace, seven years. And I didn't kiss my, my wife until the day of our engagement. Boy, did I kiss her. <laughs> it was in front of her whole family. It was a little awkward. Um, not for me. I was waiting seven years, so I didn't care. I didn't care who was watching. Grandma was there. Grandma Blodgett was there. Little Phil. At that time, little Phil. All of a sudden, I kissed her, and I heard, Ew, you're kissing my sister. Like, yeah, I am, you know? <laughs> If you don't understand that, like, you know. Truth of the matter is, what verse four is a reminder of for us is this. Number three, godliness will result in persecution. Again, I'm not suggesting I was persecuted. That's probably a poor example. But the reality is, if, if, if we decide we're gonna swim, up, uh, swim upstream <laughs> and go against the culture, cultural norms, and I would say even sometimes even in our churches anymore in some ways, and truly pursue a true life of godliness, expect some resistance. It was Jesus who said um, that as you pursue, and I'm paraphrasing from the book of Mark, that there will be resistance when you pursue the kingdom of God. When you can, the, the values and the life of the kingdom, because there's a spiritual warfare going on, there's gonna be resistance to that. The fact is, if you're not facing any persecution or any pushback on your life, if that's the case, that might not be necessarily a good thing. Probably isn't. But to stand true to biblical convictions, I meant to do this and I ran out of time, but man, some of the service, you wanna really just be grieved for the state of Christianity in America today? Go and look at some of the surveys that have been done over the last 10 years on morality, on even biblical knowledge. And you'll be shocked, not only when you look at these surveys that have been done by those who identify themselves as Christ followers, you will be shocked at the very low level of biblical knowledge and you will be shocked at the things that those who identify themselves as Christ followers condone and see as okay. You know, this isn't like godliness. Woo, let's talk about godliness. Woohoo! But maybe more than anything, holiness and godliness is what the church needs to start preaching and teaching on. Because I want to tell you, how do you reach someone far from God? You shine brightly a light in the darkness. And yet it seems so often our churches and, 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 and even as Christ, we want to be accepted by the world. We want to fit in. We don't want to cause too much stirring. Can, can I just tell you something? Scripture's clear on this. The gospel, the cross of Jesus is offensive. So the message of the gospel is offensive. The messenger shouldn't be offensive. But the message itself is offensive. 
And so we should expect, if we're willing to stand up for biblical truth, we should expect resistance. And that is not a sign of, of, oh, is God mad at me? Quite the opposite. You're probably experiencing the pleasure of God when that happens in your life. Godliness will result in persecution. Let's keep going. Look at that. We're already on, 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 the, on the fourth one of seven. And we're only, what, 18 minutes in. All right? Woo! Get excited. All right, verse five and six. But they, who are they? The ones who are persecuting. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, let me just stop before I give this point. It might seem a little confusing. It, it, the way that it reads, it is translated, it may sound like, well, wait a second, God, you know, God is going to go and, and, and uh, go judge them. I mean, they're already dead, and he's going to go judge them. Well, I, the, I think the idea here is not those who are dead, but those who are now dead. In other words, he's speaking to the audience and saying, those who are alive and those who have already died, all right, they're going to give an account someday. And let me just broaden that for all of us. All of us are going to give an account. You see, the fourth thing we need to understand is that godliness or lack of will be judged before God. We are gonna stand and give an account. Uh, there are actually a number of specific judgments that are going to take place um, in the end times. But, but, but if you want to just kind of narrow it down to maybe the two biggies, there is a judgment for those who are followers of Christ and there is a judgment for those who are not followers of Christ. For those that are not followers of Christ, that is the great white throne judgment talked about at the end of the book of Revelation. For those that know Christ, we will stand before the bema seat of Christ. We will stand before uh, Christ someday. This is not a judgment of our eternity, but it is a judgment of, of, of accountability and, and rewards or lack of rewards in eternity. Two primary passages that talk about the believers who will stand before the, uh, the judgment seat of Christ. First uh, Corinthians chapter uh, three and second Corinthians chapter five, if you want to go read. Let's do this real quick. Turn to first Corinthians chapter three, if you would, please. First Corinthians chapter three. This is the judgment seat of Christ that we as believers will stand before. Again, our salvation is secure the moment we repent of sin and place our faith in the finished work of Christ. This is about giving an account, though, for what we did on earth, and it is a judgment of reward or lack of reward. Pick it up in chapter 3, verse 13. It says, each one's work will manifest for the day, capital D, the, all right, Christ will return, all right, the, the day of, you know, when we're going to eternity, and there's a lot <laughs> that goes into end times, but just the day, will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation of Christ, that is, survives, he will receive a war, 
a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. One translation has it as one barely escaping the flames, okay? And so there's a day we're gonna stand and give an account before God. And it says some are gonna be rewarded and some are gonna barely escape the flames, now, eternity is going to be great. This is the, the, the one still gets in, but I don't know about you, but all eternity, I don't want to be the guy that barely escaped the flame. All of us are going to give an account for our words, for our actions. The things seen, the things unseen, our hearts will be revealed. And again, hear me, eternity is going to be amazing. But I think that's a little motivation. I'll be, it's a little motivation for me is when nobody sees a, a thought I'm having or maybe even an action that nobody, and I'm thinking, you know what? <laughs> Someday that's going to be exposed. <laughs> I'm going to give an account. Now, my highest motivation is I want to please God, but hey, I don't want my mom to know some of the things I've done. My mom's here tonight, so. <laughs> I know you do. Moms do. All moms do. <laughs> I think it's good for us to remind ourselves. You know, like heaven's awesome, but I think it's a good reminder for us. I'm going to give an account. Heaven's glorious. Praise God. That's why we live lives of joy. But I am still gonna give an account. And may that be for each of us tonight as we go home, an extra source of motivation to pursue lives of godliness. Every one of us, in other words, is going to face the music someday. I came across this, I thought this was kind of interesting. Um, that phrase, you've all heard that, right? Face of music. Here's how that phrase actually came about. There's actually history to this phrase, the face, uh, face the music. So many years ago, a man wanted to play in the Imperial Orchestra, but he couldn't play a note. But he was a person of great wealth and influence, and he demanded to be allowed to join the orchestra so that he could perform in front of the king. So the conductor agreed. He was given a flute, and when a concert would begin, he would raise his instrument like everybody else, pucker his lips, and move his fingers. He went through all the motions of playing, but he never made a sound. And this deception went on for two years. Then one day, a new conductor took over the Imperial Orchestra. He told the orchestra that he wanted to personally audition all the players to see how well they played. One by one, the players performed in his presence. And frantic with worry, when it was his turn, the phony flute, flutist? There's a way of saying it that's different. What is it? Flutist. No, I lost my train of thought. I, just, I knew I said that wrong, though. The guy who played flute pretended to be sick. The doctor who was ordered to examine him, however, declared that he was healthy, and so the conductor insisted that the man appear and demonstrate his skill. Ashamed, the man had to confess that he was a fake, and that was the day he had to face the music, and that's where the phrase came from. I'm not, I, 
I know some of you, some of you I know really well, some of you I know sorta, a few of you I don't know. But I have been a pastor for almost 30 years and I can tell you, (laughs) 30 years there are a lot of people that have an appearance of godliness who have denied its power. And they may have been able to fool a pastor, (laughs) fool the people around them, but the truth of the matter is, every single one of us one day is going to face the music. And if we're in Christ again, it is a glorious day, but it is still a day that we will give an account on did we or did we not truly pursue in the power of Christ, godliness in our lives. Godliness will be judged someday by God. Number seven, or excuse me, verse seven. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. This is an interesting one. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here, but this is to me just kind of a description of what godliness looks like. It's a person that chooses to be self-controlled. When, when they may want to pursue something they would really like to have, but, but, but because of godliness, they're gonna control themselves from pursuing something they ought not to pursue. And being sober-minded has this idea of being uh, clear, uh, uh, clear-minded, focused, Right, so, so godliness, I, I think that there's something to that, self-controlled and sober-minded. A person that pursues godliness understands the, the need to control themselves from even going maybe down a path. Like, like for instance, I don't think it would have been sin to go back to the thing with my wife. I don't think it would have been sin to kiss her, but, but I wanted to control even going down a path that I didn't know I could, you know, in the flesh, be able to control. And so to choose self-control, to not even go down that path, and. And that idea of sober-minded again, of, of, of seeing the bigger picture when we want to give in to remind ourselves of eternity, remind ourselves, visualizing that day we're going to stand before Christ. We have to be clear. We have to be focused. We have to remind ourselves why we're here. When we want to lose your temper with someone, when you want to strike back at someone, when you want to look at that thing on the internet, nobody else is looking. Nobody else knows that it's available for you to look at, to stop in that moment and be godly through being sober-minded, reminding yourself, think clearly, man. Stay focused. What are you after here? Is it really that? Is that what you're after? But verse seven is a reminder of this. Number five, godliness affects the quality of our relationship with God. This is the link I wanna make because again, I think self-controlled, sober-minded is kind of a, some, um, we don't like time to really spell that out, but it's, it's kind of characteristics of godliness. But it, notice it affects your prayers. Godliness affects our relationship with God, our prayer life, our, our walk with God. Communing with God and, and, and us, us having passionate, powerful prayer where, where we just feel the presence of God at work in our life is greatly affected by whether or not we pursue godliness. Now, now hear my heart here, all right? We have entrance to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But I'm gonna tell you, sin will affect the quality of that relationship, just like it would with my wife, right? If I, if I constantly acted poorly, towards my wife, my wife would still love me, but it would affect the quality of our relationship. Godliness or lack of godliness affects 
the quality, the depth, the vibrancy of our relationship with God. It affects our prayers. That is where we are talking and communing with God. I'd say that's a big deal. I mean, really, I look at all of these. Man, these are great motivations for us to pursue godliness in an ungodly world. We're almost there. Look at verse eight through 11. Now, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. The word earnestly is that idea of of with great intensity, like with great passion. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sins. That that does not carry the idea of of, um, covering for someone's sin. The word covering has the idea of forgiveness, to cover over it. It's covered, it's forgiven. That's the idea. Show hospitality to to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is the treatment uh, of others, the treatment of strangers. How how do we treat those in need? Are we we have an open house policy? (laughs) My home is your home. My money is your money. My stuff is your stuff. Do we have that sense of hospitality that says, I want to treat people well. I want to help people. And then he kind of goes in, in a way of, of serving and helping. He, he, he talks about this thing of spiritual gifts and he talks about that's one of the greatest ways that we can help love is serve other people. He says, verse 10, as each has received a gift, this is referring to spiritual gifts, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. He's mentioning a couple of spiritual gifts there. He's just, he's just giving a couple examples. There's all kinds of spiritual gifts that we see in the Bible. The gift of leadership, the gift of encouragement, right? The gift of administration, the gift of teaching. There's many of them. He's just giving a few examples. In order that in everything, God, this is what, like, this is why, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Number six, godliness is measured by our love towards others. You see, you can personally try to say no to sin, but godliness is ultimately connected in how we treat other people, our relationships. Is it a priority for us? Are we earnestly seeking to love well? I remember a year and a half ago having kind of a job review done. And, and while there were some very positive things in it, it also revealed some, some, some of my daily working habits that, 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 that um, instead of working on some things, it, it began to affect other people. And, and so I leaned into those things. I, I got a leadership coach. I read books. Why? Because I want to love well. To get it all, I didn't get it all right and I'm still learning and growing, but, but there was this desire when I saw that review to say, wow, you know, because they, you know, the, the, boy, I tell you, you want to really know what people think, do an anonymous review. And I think there's pluses and minuses for that. There's oftentimes no accountability to what people say too, but, but wow, there are some things on there like, wow, I didn't even know that. And, and the choice was made, like, do I, pout and, and say, well, that's their problem. That's just how I am. That's just who I am. Accept me who I am. I mean, isn't that the world we live in? That's just who I am. Deal with it. 
That's the world we live in. No, there, there were s- certain themes in some of those reviews that said, no, I need to work on loving better in these ways. How important is it to love well? How much of a priority is that for us? To love earnestly, to love well, to, to make it a priority, to love better. How many of us are every year wanting to be a better husband, a better you know, wife, better parent? How many of us are reading, you know, reading books on that? How can I grow? How can I grow in how I love? That's godliness. It wants to love well. Godliness is one that with a love that is marked by forgiveness, is willing to forgive and let go of hurts. And ultimately, as as Peter talked about spiritual gifts, love is one that understands that we are here to serve, not to be served. It uses uh, uh, the, the person who wants to be godly, wants to love well. They, they, they figure out what their abilities and strength and spiritual giftedness is and, and they cultivate those things and they exercise those things for the betterment of others, for the encouragement of others, that others might find Christ, that others who know Christ might be encouraged. Godliness, as we said in the beginning, is not simply Bible knowledge is not simply following a set of rules. And really, at the end of the day, godliness is not just my interaction with sin. Ultimately, godliness is measured on how I love the people I encounter. And the last one is this. Number seven, godliness has as its goal, the glory of God. I said at the beginning that the motivation for godliness is the gospel. That that should motivate us what Christ has done, the depths that he went to be persecuted, to be hang on a cross, a savior who fought for us, a God who never gives up on us, even in our worst moments, he is not the, 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 the God who condemns, but on our worst moments as Christ, probably he is, he, is the, he is the Father that loves. And when we sin, that he doesn't condemn us to hell, but he corrects us out of that love. Like, like the fact that we are his beloved should motivate us for godliness. But the goal, ultimately the goal of pursuing godliness is the glory of God. That the people around us see our behavior, they see our attitude, and it shines a light. It magnifies, this is the idea of glorifying God, it it shines a light, It, it, it it magnifies how great God is. It causes others to to ask questions, to wanna know more about our faith to question, man, why, why are you so positive? Why, 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 why are you so willing to forgive that person at work after what they've done to you? Like what, what godliness shines a light on God. Can I be honest? I don't always wanna be godly. Like most of the time I wanna be, 
But there's moments and times and I don't want to be godly. Sometimes I get mad at someone, I just want to punch them in the face, truth be told. <laughs> I don't want to love them. I don't want to wash their feet. I want to punch them in the nose. There's times when no one's looking and something comes on. I'm, I have protection on all of my technology. I have accountability. I have all of those things. But, but, but even with those defenses, there's times where something pops up or, you know, and, and no one's around. And I, I'll just be honest, in, in those moments, there's a part of me that wants to look and indulge. I'd be lying if I said you, I've never have. <laughs> I never once in 28 years ever thought of anyone but my wife. I, I wish I could say that, but I can't. But in those moments of temptation for any of us, whatever it is, whether it's purity, whether it's attitude or a relationship with someone who annoys you, whatever the context where you struggle with godliness, those are the moments for us to be gospel-fueled. <laughs> And be reminded of all that Christ has done for us. Be reminded that we will give an account. And be reminded that there is no greater thing we will ever do on this planet for God than to shine the light on God. I'll close with this. The story is told of a famous violinist who was to perform at a concert hall of world renown. As he stood before the packed house that night and played his violin, he mesmerized the audience with his prowess and skill. And as he lifted his bow off the string on his final note, the hall erupted with thunderous applause and he was given a standing ovation. He looked at the crowd for a moment and walked off the stage only to return to render an encore performance. To the amazement of the masses gathered there that night, his encore performance was even more beautiful and flawless than the first. He looked to the audience and left the stage for the second time, but was beckoned back by the deafening roar of the multitudes that once again stood to their feet in adulation. He gave yet another encore number, leaving the audience fumbling for words that could describe what their eyes and ears had just experienced. This sequence was repeated several more times until finally the virtuoso of virtuosos finished his piece, looked to the audience, nodded his head and simply walked off the stage while the ferocious cheers could still be heard long after he exited. Reporters pressed outside the violinist's dressing room waiting to catch a word from the man who had just given the performance of a lifetime. As he emerged from the small room, one, one reporter asked the question, sir, why did you give so many encore performances? You could have stopped after the first and everyone would have been amazed. That's what most people do. The violinist stopped and replied, for the very first time in my career, my master, the one who taught me to play the violin was in the audience. And when I finished my performance, everyone stood except for one person. I played again, and everyone stood to applaud except for him. I continued to play. 
On the conclusion of the last encore, I looked into the seats and I noticed that everyone, including my master, was standing and applauding. It was only then that I was satisfied that I had done a good job. I tend to be a people pleaser. I tend to care what people think, truth be told. I've shared that with some of you and some of you know that. But I'm gonna tell you at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you think about me. It doesn't matter what other people think about me. The only thing that really matters at the end of the day is what my Savior thinks about me. And you. And to make the choices and the decisions in our daily life, not what others expect us to make or what we think won't rock the boat, but to go through our life and say, the only one, the only standing ovation I want is from the God who sent his son to die for my sins. That's the approval I'm after. And God is looking for godly men and women. Let us live for the glory of God and the applause of our Savior. Amen. Amen. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge. Godliness. Some days it seems to flow and some days it just seems elusive and some days the heart yearns for it and some days the flesh is just so selfish. And so, Father, may these exhortations from Peter challenge us and motivate us this week to pursue godliness out of a response for all you've done for us. With the understanding we'll give an account because godliness brings you so great of glory. May we all live to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. We hope you were encouraged by God's word today. You can join us each weekday morning for a five-minute fill-up. And for other teaching, writing, and training resources, don't forget to check out our website, at uncagedbibleministry.com. The mission of Uncaged is to help people fall in love with the Word of God so they fall more in love with the God of the Word.